0: 2019 is our 10-year anniversary at Homebase, and it also marks the start of this show. Homebase Nation is really the product of a healthcare organization that serves veterans and military families, and all of you, a grateful nation that helps support and make this ongoing care possible. So thank you from all of us at Homebase. And as we move into 2020, happy and healthy new year to all of you and your families. To learn more about accessing care and how you can help, visit homebase.org and email us anytime at homebasenation@partners.org with feedback on the show and tell us your story or your message to a service member or veteran in your life. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Hirschberg, physician at Home Base Program for Veterans and Families, a partnership of the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Red Sox Foundation. I'm truly honored to host this show as someone who continues to learn from our remarkable service members every day. Thank you for taking this journey with us as we cross one bridge at a time to connect military civilian culture and shine a light on the people
1: serving those who serve. This is Home Base Nation.
2: So they were basically saying to me two things. One, you need to prepare for him to be super depressed. And two, you know, he may wake up differently than most of the guys in here because he's not a soldier. Very first question he wanted to know when he sort of realized what happened was, how is everybody else? Am I? And I said, you're the, actually the worst one hurt. You know, Doug is okay. He's in the hospital on another floor. And Vinny and um, Magnus are fine. And you sank, you put your head back on the pillow and closed your eyes. You said, oh, thank God. And I remember thinking, wow, he acted like a soldier.
0: Giving back to service members and families comes in many ways. And for Lee and Bob Woodruff, the opportunity surfaced in early 2006. Just weeks after his new job as co-anchor of ABC World News, Bob was critically injured by a roadside bomb outside of Taji, Iraq. You know, I was hit by an IED about 20 feet off to the
3: left. First of all, the air knocked me out, then followed by the rocks and the and the metal, pierced through, broke my scapula on the back, it shattered the left part of my jaw. 37 minutes later, they got me after two stops, got me to Ballad, and they hmm. removed the left part of my skull for a craniectomy. So I should not have lived at all and the assumption was I was not going to live
0: when we got on that helicopter the blast caused severe traumatic brain injury and need for emergent removal of the left side of Bob's skull and weeks in the intensive care unit After 36 days in coma, he awoke, and the relearning process began. To move, to speak, and reintegrate back to life with his wife, Lee, and his four kids.
2: It was Bob's neurosurgeon who was the one who said to me at one point in the hospital, somebody needs to write a book about this, because Hmm. there are thousands of these kids that are coming through these two hospitals. And he said, no one out there is talking about this.
0: An author, media consultant, and mother of four, Lee Woodruff began writing. Her therapeutic journaling would transform into the New York Times bestseller, In an Instant, which she co-authored with Bob to tell the story of resilience and re-entry from both the caregiver and patient perspective.
3: The idea for it was really starting to grow while I was still unconscious. So Lee witnessed Marines right there on the same floor that were not being visited. They didn't seem to have the same support, partly because their family couldn't even get time off to go and visit you know, their son, their brother, their father that was wounded. And so that was one of the things that led to us wanting to do something.
0: While Bob emerged from the ICU to rehabilitation, Lee and Bob's brothers immediately saw the need for helping not only the wounded service member, but the entire family, and thus the Bob Woodruff Foundation was born.
2: So there were boxes of letters that came Hmm. into ABC, and boxes of shawls and flags and hand-carved things, and I just thought, wow, we have a responsibility.
0: To date, their foundation has raised and invested over $70 million through more than 400 grants, serving more than 2.5 million service members and families. It's been 10 years since Homebase was born, and it is fitting to sit with the Woodruffs on this milestone year. And it makes even more sense that Bob threw out the first pitch at Fenway Park that year, which you'll hear was apparently a strike, and the start of a meaningful collaboration for years to come. We would like to thank Lee and Bob for the hospitality and a warm welcome to the Homebase Nation team. We'll see you on the other end, and thank you for listening. Thanks for uh, sitting down in your home with us.
2: We're <laughs> happy to welcome you to our home. I'm sorry it took you four hours to get here.
0: <laughs> well, Cassie, I have to say, our pilot was fantastic, and she only drove about 82 miles an hour Oh, on the good! Way. But anyway, we made it, and thank you for... Having us here, with a, I hear birds in the background, and this is an awesome place. Thanks. And you said you just, uh, you guys moved here in July.
2: We did. We dropped and ran. And it still sort of looks like that, doesn't it? This is our fourth
3: yeah. house. Is, I think it's our 14th house we've lived in 14th. since we got married, the 10th city we've lived in, the third country we've lived in since we got married.
0: 30 years? Yes. Happy in, in September? Yeah. Nine eleven.
2: 11
3: 1988, we got married
0: speaking of anniversaries we are so happy to be talking with you guys because 10 years ago home base started thank you for what you've done for us for the veterans it's actually a 10-year milestone of the run to home base in july and that's a fenway park run of a 9k that goes around boston and then ends on on actually the home plate that's cool so since that time We have kind of a rule of 20s, right? There's $20 $20 million have been raised, 20,000 veterans have been uh, helped, and there's been 20,000 runners, basically, over 10 years. Mm. And so Michael Allard says hello. Oh, he's mm, a great man. Who was really happy that we could get together. When we initially started thinking about this podcast initiative and the media part of Homebase, Michael and I talked about who would we be thinking about talking with and what kind of stories we want to tell about the veteran family and military population. And certainly you guys came up. And then of course, a couple months later, instead of emailing and trying to get a hold of you, I met you yeah, at an that's airport. strange, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Just we're
3: hanging not, on the I airport. I
2: that was the story.
3: <clears throat> I guess we meet a lot of people in airports. I, I'm, I'm there all the time. So, but that was, that was very cool.
0: You were very gracious enough to, uh, chat for a little bit. And we, uh, we shared a drink, and then we went on our ways, and um, here we are. You know, you mentioned before that you guys um, have been together for 30 years, and there's a quote that came up recently, talking with a musician, actually, named Livingston Taylor, mm. who is uh James's brother. James's brother, who's a prolific writer, teacher at Berkeley College of Music, and he said to us that it's much better and more rewarding to be interested rather than interesting. So... I thought of you guys immediately, um, circling way back to, what, mid-80s when you guys met. Being interested brought you to China, right? Yeah. And I know that you, uh, in, in law school, learned not only the, the language but the culture, and there was something about China that piqued your interest.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget. Back First of all, University of Michigan is a huge you know, China relationship university. It has got a long history of it. And it's filled with some of the top professors in terms of Chinese culture and Chinese yeah. history. But I remember this was back in I was in law school. I graduated in 1987, but in the middle of the 1980s, you know, the, the magazines were covered with these pictures of Deng Xiaoping, you know, the leaders of China. The economy in China, with this great hope that this place would turn around and get and emerge out of its Cultural Revolution, and then become even more capitalistic, more modern, more educational, and so all I, all I wanted to do. That's why I started studying Chinese. I thought mm. this is a, is a very cool place to go to and really interesting as a place. So I became very interested in it. And that's all I wanted to do. I really wanted, when I got out of law school, I wanted to go practice and then ultimately get up somehow in Asia into there. Of course, Tiananmen Square changed a lot of that
0: after we went. Do you remember what it was about China? I'm just curious. Was there a place you went, something you read, a person you talked to?
2: Well, you had Chinese friends in law school. And I remember you saying to me as a lawyer, if you could understand China, how it worked, and the language and if china were to open its doors a little bit and ultimately be more warm to capitalism you know that that's that is going to be the next giant which is actually what happened yeah sometimes
3: mm. i just wanted to go and see things that i had never seen before i had this uh, addiction of go on new voyages to find something brand new i mean literally when i was young i would travel by myself mm. i was one of those odd people that i wouldn't even Hook together a bunch of friends and go somewhere. I would just go travel to like Australia, you know, New Zealand or in the Middle East to, you know, Israel and Jordan and just travel on my own, hitchhiking through these countries. And I did them almost practically free. I would work while I'm over there to try to make some money. And back in those days, you could actually get in a plane. And uh, some of these companies, some of these airlines would say, well, listen, if you can haul a bunch of these packages with you over from this country this you'd fly for free just hauling things around now 9-11 changed all that you can't do that anymore
0: so you but, did that in your 20s after college yeah
3: that's right really, yeah well, i think after after college i went to a couple countries and then after law school I was done while i was practicing for law i did that too so it was just a, a voyage and i was always it's always wanted to do it and then china was my newest one i really wanted to go there and learn about it did you have the travel bug before you met bob
2: I had been to so few places growing up in Albany, New York. Like a big, woo, vacation was Florida um, once we got to Puerto Rico. Uh Um, So I knew that I had a small slice of what the world looked like. And I knew when I met Bob that he had that gene that wanted to just travel and explore. And that sounded exciting to me.
0: I'll briefly tell you my job, why, why I'm here. I work in traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, uh, people that have had new changes in their life and culminating in disabilities. I'm a physiatrist or a rehab doc, and we talk about outcome. We talk about what are the goals? How do we bring the person to the next phase in rehab? I read your book, the book you guys both wrote together 10 years ago or so. And uh, it spoke to me in a very different way than it speaks to me now, because I've gone through my career more than 10 years later. I learned a lot from it. And what was interesting is that when I knew, sort of fast forward in my life, is that in 10 years from then, I listened to your book for nine hours, going to Rochester, New York. And uh, it's the best thing you can do when you go to Rochester, New York, is listen (laughs) to a book on tape.
2: So, I don't know if you remember this, but your speech was still so impaired at the time at which we the recorded that, the difficulty
3: of reading into audio. The
2: you there were times that with an entire sentence it would have to be read. You'd have to do a retake three yeah. times. Imagine Audible
3: dot com loving me, really?
2: Yeah, can you imagine that? And he Sorry. persevered. Um, yeah, because
0: that really was in two thousand
3: seven. Mm-hmm. Right. The book. The book came out thirteen months after I was hit. Right. So you know, this was Lee writing writing this book. You know, largely this was Lee's therapy. This was her. And she can say more about this, but I, this was, you know, writing for her has always been a way for her to get through moments of stress as well. It's her deepest love to write, and she's mm-hmm. written books and she's got best-selling books, and she's got incredible articles and blogs okay, that enough. she's written. Okay, I'm a <laughs> agent, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this this was. a website
0: I can look at. <laughs> <up? laughs> <laughs> yeah. um,
3: but anyway, so yes. that I think that's what she was she was writing. For me, I was kind of lying on the floor dictating what I wanted to say in it and she was my interpreter because at that time when she's writing this book I think you know more than anybody else what traumatic brain injury is and how much I could think clearly I mean how I could come up with the words to make my my point so Lee was the master writer while I would just tell the stories It was therapeutic for you Bob for me for the yes I think it absolutely was I mean I wanted to make sure that we were we're establishing something this was partly to, to write a book and tell the story but you, you know, this was a really bizarre change in my life when this happened because so much attention that we got. Is that you said earlier that it's almost better to be interested than interesting? And as a journalist, I, I was the one that was interested in things and asking the questions and trying to pursue stories and dig up information from other people. I was never ever ever about me, and it was bizarre. I think for both of us to ever have to ask her questions and give
0: talks and and the last thing you want to be interesting about is a bomb changing your life and a brain injury it would be much better to be interesting by winning the
3: super bowl with brady or something you know yeah that's the boston thing for you guys (laughs) (laughs) it took me a long time to admit it or just to realize it or even to believe it that i wasn't going to be exactly the way i was before I think Lee is the one that knew me more than anyone else Is still to this day. She's, she knew what happened, and she recognized it. And I can imagine, you know, yes, we got so much attention. I think uh, she's the one that deserved all of it because she was the one that knew this was happening.
0: But the attention was double-sided, I would imagine.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't – it was in an interesting position in that Bob's work life was completely separate from – the family. I didn't know the people he worked with. I heard all the stories. He would go off and do his job and tell stories. And I had my job and I was raising kids. And so when this happened, it was a full stop. And all of a sudden I had to enter his world. And I just had all these names of people I'd heard, but none of the relationships. And Jumping into trauma, which you see a million times, uh, in that way when it's personal and it's your life was really bizarre. And the book was never meant to be, I never set out to write a book, but as somebody who's always used writing as a way to interpret what's happening with the good, the bad, and the scary, but more Mm. the bad and the scary Mm. in life, just because I think that's a form of therapy, Uh, the book was really just my diary. It started out as me just trying to make sense of what was happening. And through writing, it was the only control I had over what was happening, was to organize at the end of each day what had just happened, what had been said, what were the emotions and feelings. And then, of course, with the brain injury, everybody is telling you to constantly keep talking to him. So I would be telling him the stories of our life. He was not responding, by the way. Um, and that was... In doing that, it was sort of the story of our life. So that was juxtaposed mm. against what was happening in real time, which was frightening and scary and really hard to imagine. But it was Bob's neurosurgeon, Rocco Armanda, mm. who was the one who said to me at one point in the hospital, "I, you know, I hear that you're a writer. Somebody needs to write a book about this because mm. there are thousands of these kids that are coming through these two hospitals. And it, this was 2006. And he said, nobody knows, no one out there is talking about this.
0: And you say 2006, that is the crooks of when yeah. this conflict finally bubbled.
2: Yeah, the book came out with the Walter Reed scandal. So, it was the perfect storm to be like, what are we doing for our vets? What's going on here? There's peeling paint and roaches and you know there's, there are these brain injuries and no one's talking about it and these kids are getting discharged and sent back to the mm. battlefield and it was it was actually this perfect storm that we didn't cook up.
0: There was this reactive process rather than proactive. I mean, this is finally people needed to say, "Okay, we got to stand up and do something." And not fortunately that you got injured, but in a sense, there was a lot that came out of, and we'll get to like what came out of that that helped people. Well, yeah, I mean,
3: this finally did become getting you know getting some attention. People didn't really know much about this before for multiple reasons. One is that yeah, there's a, a VA that is so gigantic to make them to change and, and do something that's new, that's like turning the Titanic, right? So it's heading towards the iceberg. What are you gonna do? You can not you can't just flip it around really quickly. So the VA's learned that we never had really dealt with these kinds of wounds in the war before. We had, you know, explosions that Damaged the brain, but people survived, but almost, but, but rarely in previous wars. You know, this is the one where you, you were damaged, even if there's nothing visible. There were so many of these IED explosions and multiple deployments, which then led to types of PTS and post-traumatic stress. And that's just they were not ready for these kinds of types of wounds. And the number of them, huge number of people were s- way more survived with some damage than they were killed. Whereas in other wars, it was completely the opposite. So, yeah, the, the story had to be told.
2: I remember someone saying, TBI. And I remember saying, what's that? Right. And I think when you roll forward now with everything that happens, yeah, um, you know, the stories that are out, the work that Home Base does, the work that other organizations do, I think a fair number, number of Americans would be able to tell you what a TBI is.
3: But when, when we were in there you know we were surrounded by so many people that had been wounded I'm, we were all stacked on the third floor and a lot of them marines partly because this was the navy which is you know includes the marines and mm-hmm. the marines and the army were the ones that really got hit the most because they're the one on the ground not so not as much as sea or in the air so so many were wounded but we saw that the The care to save their life was amazing. It was remarkable. Never, never before there were advances that were developed, even already, and that was in the beginning of this peak of the of the wounds of of the war. That kind of care was amazing. You know, I would not have lived if this happened just a couple years earlier than 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 I did when this happened
0: to me. And possibly if you're right here in the states, yeah. Well, you know, I I
3: I talk about that a lot because you know the fact that I was, you know, I was hit. By an IED about twenty feet off to the left, the, the the rocks. First of all, the air just knocked me out. Then followed by the rocks and the and the metal pierced through, broke my scapula on the back. It, it pierced through this, shattered the less part of my jaw. Some of these little rocks went all the way through, past the artery and the veins, and it implanted itself on the carotid artery on the other side. Part of my, uh, I'm, I'm blind in the upper right-hand corner of my eyes. Uh, some of them actually went in front of my eyeball. some of these little tiny rocks, and implanted themselves in the left part of my nose. And then I got about 50, 37 minutes later, they got me after two stops, got me to Balad, b- and they mm-hmm. removed the left part of my skull for a cr- you know, craniectomy. So I should not have lived at all. And the assumption was I was not going to live when we got on that helicopter, head off to the Bethesda Naval. So, yes, yeah. I should not this is an amazing advancement in medicine. It's the only good thing somewhat, but anyway, what I was going to say is that when I got that craniectomy and I was rushed around, if this was in, in New York, they would, they've never seen an IED explosion. They hadn't done four, of them, four surgeries a day as they had been doing out there on the sands of Iraq. And, uh, and of course, there'd be lawyers everywhere with malpractice. So they, you know, they do a <laughs> lot more. S- sorry.
0: <laughs> you know, there's a guy that we're going to talk with in a week or so named Travis Mills. And have you met him or wait, why heard do of I him? know that I know that name? He's one of the five quad amputees yeah. oh, right. yeah. that survived. Yeah. Another the reason I bring him up too is the signature injuries of the war were brain injury, obviously PTSD and both, but also limb loss. Yeah. And he was one of the five that lost all four. And when he was down on the ground after the blast, what's the first thing he said? How's, how's,
3: my, how's my comrade?
0: Go get him. I read that and I had chills. And it, it, it feel, you, see, you think about that brotherhood. And it made me think of you when I heard about Vinny. And I heard about the fact that at 36 days or whatever it was, one of the first things you asked, besides, of course, where's my wife, <laughs> um, is, how's Vinny? Yeah, yeah, right?
3: Yeah, Vinny Malhotra. He was in the tank with me. He was down inside. So the good thing for him was that he was not hit. And then Doug Vogt, my cameraman, he was up with me. And I just remember my biggest concern of all was that they were, that they were hurt more than me. And I think every single soldier, Marine that I saw uh, since then, airmen, sailors, they have all been the
2: same. That was actually an I interesting mean, point for me? me because I said, when i was waiting for him to wake up and he took a long, took a long darn time, I said, what, like, what is this going to be like? how is this going to go? Because they kept turning his medication down and he wasn't waking up on his own. And they said, well, normally when the guys in here wake up, the first question, there are two things that they ask. I bet you know both of them. <laughs> is, it, is everything still intact down right. here, right? Um, and then, this, then the, probably the first thing is, where's everybody, how's everybody else? Right? And I said, well, Bob's not a soldier. He's, he's a journalist. And they prepared me for him to be super depressed Um, You know, not just because of recognizing ultimately what he had lost, but just that trauma compounds itself. So the more trauma you've seen in your life, the more difficult that's going to be. So Bob having covered wars for 10 years, I didn't know. I mean, he, he, I didn't hear a lot of the bad stuff when he would come home he would have to take off what I would call his mental flak jacket. So he would come home from covering wars and I would just throw the kids at him. I would, you right. know, go to Girl Scouts, like take, uh. take these kids out. and It was the best possible medicine that you could give someone. Yeah.
0: It's the best antidote. A lot of these soldiers yeah.
2: didn't have families yet. A lot yeah. of these guys waking up. So they were basically saying to me two things. One, you need to prepare for him to be super depressed. And two, you know, he may wake up differently than most of the guys in here. Cause he's not a soldier. Very first Question he wanted to know when he sort of realized what happened was, How is everybody else? Am I? And I said, You're the actually the worst one hurt. You know, Doug is okay. He's in the hospital on another floor, and Vinny and um, Magnus are fine. And you sank, you put your head back on the pillow and closed your eyes. You said, Oh, thank God. And I remember thinking, wow, he acted like a soldier.
3: Yeah, we had an incredible team with lots of experience. It wasn't because I'd covered so many you know, spent so many years covering war. But the guys we had had even uh, done the same. I mean, Doug Vogt, my cameraman, had been covering wars for 25 years. He'd been in these, you know, these these rogue nations forever. And so he was prepared. He could deal with it. Hmm. But that's really not because I thought that that I was telling them what to do and that kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. We were just complete comrades. I just was really scared to death that given the fact that I was certainly making a lot of decisions, yeah, of where to go and when. But all of us were pitching in on that. But we, but I was—I just was scared to death that they were going to get worse. But I think a lot of times when people come from a place like that where they're serving, you know, with their unit, mm-hmm. most of the guys I not want to go back and keep serving. Yeah. They did not want to go. And then when you're left, you've left so many behind. That's the kind of guilt, too. They're still risking their lives. And that's much more of a military thing than us. We all left. I mean, we did not go back. And both Doug and Magnus and, and Vinny really are not covering more war zones. Those guys in the that fight, they, they would like to go back and join those that they left behind. So not even when, they're, when there's wounds, but they go to the safer place of America while they're still at risk. is upsetting. My God, it's
0: good to see. You. It's not just about the veterans having the problem coming back. It, it's it's the fact that our country needs to meet them in the middle. There's a lot of people that will um, slip through the cracks. You know, you, you guys started the Bob Woodruff Foundation uh, in 2007, was it? Uh, yep, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah.
3: And you know Lee can tell the story because really this was really something that the, the idea for it was really starting to grow while I was still unconscious. And Lee was there with my brothers. So Lee witnessed people, you know, Marines, right there on the same floor that were not being visited. They didn't seem to have the same support, partly because their family couldn't even get time off to go and visit you know, their son, their brother, their father that was wounded. And so that was one of the things that, that really led to us wanting to do something. And Lee was really the major leader on this, well, in the very beginning.
2: And your brothers. We just were witnessing um, an asymmetry once people, and again, it, it wasn't the acute care stage. It was once they left to go home. yeah. And then, you know, the person with the three-hour drive to the VA, even though they had a rehab hospital right in their hometown, but they weren't allowed to access that. So it just felt like we needed to do something. We There was a, that moment, that little 15 minutes of fame, um, and going out on having the book come out and being out on book tour and being on television and having people literally hand us $20 bills and say, make sure this gets to a soldier. Hmm. We thought, all right, we've got to do something with this. We can't just I hadn't watched any of the television. I didn't really know how big the story was. I hunkered down and let everybody in my circle be my eyes and ears. And I sort of realized the magnitude that people not only knew who he was, but they cared very much what had happened and they connected it to their own family members in the service. So there were boxes of letters that came Mm. into ABC and boxes of shawls and flags and hand-carved things and soldiers giving their own medals. And I just thought, wow, you know, we have a responsibility.
0: General Hammond. This is a very special time for home base because it's 10 years in the, since the inception, um, and I wanted you to just tell us about what that means to you and kind of a, how this came about and why it's important. Thanks, Ron.
1: Well, first of all, I'd have to tell you, uh, in speaking with lots of people across the state and the country, I'm often asked why do we have a professional baseball team working with a hospital to create. What I'll tell you is the world's best clinic for post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. And the answer I always give folks is, number one, we've got America's best hospital and we've got America's best sports team. To them, innovative ways to deal with problems on the Red Sox or developing innovative new treatments is second nature and not something they're scared of. They're not afraid to jump in with both feet. And both organizations have a reputation of investing heavily into success once they feel you've hit that pivotal point. And with home base, they saw the need, they saw the opportunity to make a big difference, and they went all in early.
0: And when you say early, tell me about 10 years what have we done?
1: What are you most proud of? Sure. So so back in 2008, when the Red Sox really got this inspiration to do this, no one else in the private sector was moving in this direction to to provide direct clinical care in this way. Um, Over the past decade, we have developed new and innovative models of treatment and changed the face of medicine for our veterans. We found a way to compress therapy so that it's manageable and highly, highly effective. And through this, We provided clinical care and support at no cost to our veterans, the best care you can get to roughly 25,000 veterans and military family members with life-changing results. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ron, and thank you all for tuning in to Home Base Nation. I'm Bill Davidson, retired Army Command Sergeant Major and Director of Veteran Outreach here at Home Base. Home Base provides care to veterans, service members, and their families at no cost. Connect with us at homebase.org and tell us why you support, and we can show you how to support. Now back to our conversation.
0: Well, I think there was probably an element, too, of, uh, like, like you said, you weren't, you didn't have the TV on the whole time, but there was, uh, there was people like myself and many others that, you know, would see your face on TV, and it was in our living rooms and it was all across the country. And I think even if you don't know someone personally, hmm. there's a certain connection. I don't know, is it—is it, right, is it subconscious? See. What is it? But there's a, listen, my whole, my whole growing up looking at, I, I was a Peter Jennings guy. My parents and I would watch the news with, with him as an anchor growing up. And he he was that kind of person that you thought is not really in the family, but kind of has a connection to your TV set. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's an element
2: of that Right, but you don't see it when it's you. That's just my husband. He's walking in the door, better darn well take the garbage out tonight. Like that, (laughs) you know. So that was was weird. That was weird, as you say, to be all of a sudden interesting, but not necessarily in the way that you wanted.
0: Yes. Now, moving forward, um, you know, I looked it up recently. Um, I've known about your foundation, but I got some recent stats. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great efforts out there. There's a lot of great philanthropy and wonderful glitzy websites but when you when you get down to it you just scroll down and there's what 400 or more grants for a total of what 60 million dollars yeah and i don't
3: i don't think this was going to become as big as we thought in the very beginning yeah. we know how big was this going to be when lee mentioned start something to do for somebody we're getting 20 dollar checks from to to back it but is it it's just kind of Exploded so much desire to do something for the veterans, and people didn't know where to put it. But somewhere around forty-five thousand of these organizations had been founded and created. Some of them amazing, some of them mediocre, some of them a scam. Whatever it was, there's so many out there that people didn't know what to do with it. You know, Home Base has got a it's got a definition that people knows what it is, and they know, and they've seen actually physical and real visual effects by it, so people can see something's being done. But people didn't know exactly where to put it. So we created this foundation so that we could give them guidance on that. And we never thought it was going to grow as fast as it has. We
2: also, mm-hmm. um, because of the TBI aspect, initially we started out with a pretty narrow definition of injured vets in the, in the area of TBI. And then that began to broaden so you put it all in this rubric, and that allowed us to expand the nature of some of the grants that we gave right. and find some non-traditional places that needed it, always looking for those places where that veteran had exhausted everything that the government gives them. But as you said, still recognizing there's still so much need.
0: Well, so that that's the key thing I wanted to touch on, is we can't under emphasize i guess how great the government has been in many ways and stepped up to the challenge however you guys are kind of gap fillers it sounds like and in an appropriate way and it's a hard thing to do because the government has billions of dollars but they have to spend it on many things in this world in our recovery in uh in healthcare. so i think it's very um important to point out that they are not just research grants and they don't um uh, they're not. They're not looking for new discoveries. Um, one of the examples that comes up is the the Sesame Street grant, which is so innovative. The um,
2: yeah, that is really about storytelling. So the Sesame Street came to us. I can't remember when that connection happened. Actually, Bob's ABC boss, David Weston's wife, Sherry, runs all of their development and philanthropy. So she was the first second person I talked to after Bob was injured. So first it was David who called to give me the news. And then I asked to speak to Sherry because I wanted to just get her thoughts on, how am I going to tell my kids this? And then, of course, this character, Rosita, has been created rosita is a muppet whose dad came back from the war without legs i don't know rosita oh i
0: saw of course i saw someone in a wheelchair but i didn't know the story
2: yeah so Uh. rosita is the young muppet who allows the other kids who watch the show to talk about what do you do when dad's injured and their military program has had a series of phases and some of it is you know talking about why dad's different or dad or mom who are no longer here who didn't come back from the war, and just tackling some of these tough issues like explaining PTS to kids.
0: Right, because I, I think that one reason why yes, it's it's you know this is my, my generation. You know, growing up in the seventies, Sesame Street was on on TV all the time. And there's there's a, there's younger folks that can identify it even to this day. Um, but what's very I think poignant about it is that you always think of the caregiver burden with someone with Alzheimer's or it's our elderly parents and but these are young people that have kids right, right. i think with it, sesame street was
3: people watched it one because they grew up with it like like you said which we all did but it's also and it's also got a, a entertainment part of it so people can watch what they discovered is they can talk about very serious stories that People usually turn off; they don't want to listen to it. It's kind of like you know John Oliver's. I talk this a lot about. Mm. You know John Oliver's been able to get incredibly serious topics, and the younger generation will watch it because he'll insert a little something funny in it. Yeah, that's right. So I think that's That's a model that works well. Sesame Street has done the same thing now with ridiculous uh, or, or silly humor. It was about just like a form of entertainment and storytelling that brought these in. The second thing is that they came in just in time when. All of us that were wounded had been getting all of the attention, and the ones that were not were the caregivers, likely, and a lot of them like the little kids. People didn't even realize that these kids, the, the assumption was what happened to daddy was not something the kids really had to deal with. You know, mm. They still had, they were not wounded, they were fine, they, can, they don't have any kind of PTS. They were not in the sands of some war zone. So this was a recognition the family, by yeah. the government and and our world that, something had to be done, and that was a good tool to use. I have
2: an example I want to talk about because I think it's so important. Um, The one that stayed with me was one that we did on infertility and intimacy, which is the part of war that no one wants to talk about. The greatest sorrow for a caregiver is that lack of my big strong guy came back and he sits on the couch all day and wears all these things that nobody wants to talk about because they're not dignified. So into that comes the physical piece of injury where... You've gone to war, you came home, you met your wife, maybe in a bar, but now you're not able to have children because Mm -hmm. of your injury. And so as a government, we had no ability to pay for in vitro or fertility treatments for those vets. Now, if you were active duty and you had infertility, we covered that. Hmm. But are you kidding me? You went off to war. You lost body parts. You could no longer have a family. And we said, "Sorry, there isn't Sorry. a fund for that." No kids. So that you. enraged me, and I'm good when I'm enraged. Actually, um, we got together with all the um, Association of Fertility Clinics and cold called the pharma companies that make the drugs and put this fund together of dollars because hmm. these families were putting ten grand, fifteen grand on their credit cards. Yeah. aged ovaries were aging out. Ultimately, that got greenlit through Congress, but there was still no funding for it. So finally, there's a little bit of funding, but the restrictions on it are pretty narrow. You have to be heterosexual. You have to be married. So a gay couple who is partners doesn't qualify. And we said without value judgment, gee, that seems a little unfair. You went to war. You fought for me. You want to be able to have a baby, just like if you're active duty. So, it's the Veterans in Vitro Initiative. I said that wrong. It's Viva, is the shorthand Uh of it. And that's sort of of out-of-the-box thinking that I'd like to think that we and organizations like Homebase... Do every day to come together and solve some of the issues that government's kind of just too big and unwieldy to pull off. Can I can I say real quick because
3: of what Lee's done, which is yeah. like she said, she always when she gets a little anger, she can just fight and, and, and never lose. Is her three three little yeah. girls were born, yeah, and then
0: about three weeks ago, a boy. First oh, boy. The f- so this is the four four fourth babies.
2: Baby. Fourth yeah. baby has been born. Yeah. We finally had a boy.
0: We're actually talking about four babies that have been
2: born
3: from yeah. this effort. That's why I say yeah. like visual success. <laughs> you can prove that it works. Yeah. yeah. So that, just imagine those cool. couples.
0: Yeah. 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 And I wanted to mention too. So the three areas. Um, there's a little acronym that I. It's all about acronyms in medicine, probably in in journalism too. <laughs> um, but there's three main areas um, in. BWF for the Bob, Bob Woodward Foundation where you focus on right there's rehab recovery mm-hmm. there's uh, um, uh, education employment right
2: and quality of life and into that is the caregiver and family
0: right so these are these are kind of uh, arms of mm-hmm. the of the project what do you think works with the ongoing fundraising efforts I think I think Lee probably knows
3: like knows more of more of this than I do but I I know that almost strangely where a lot of these foundations have been very, have had a lot of difficulty to raise anything. Mm. And it's really difficult for me in, in the media world to try to tell more stories about it because the war is getting older and you're not seeing many people pouring back in like it did in the beginning. But it's been quite remarkable that we have actually stepped up the fundraising because people want to do something. And we've got a team of those that know. Existing organizations or ones that are being developed that are remarkably efficient, and that's the mm-hmm. big goal. That a lot of groups have now come to our foundation people, to us, and, f- and really funded us with what they really wanted, everything they wanted to spend on this, so that we could find the right place to go. So, I mean, for example, mm-hmm. NFL has a lot of requests for help, and they just finally turned turned to us and said, here, we'll give you what we're trying to give out and please give us the right direction to put it in so that's that's really helped a lot of the fundraising recently
0: yeah so it's the implementation that you guys
2: right so we would sort of be like your what's a good analogy like your banker we know where to invest the funds looking at the landscape and getting the kind of roi or the programs that someone's interested someone may solely be interested in uh, quality of life so they may want to solely work in the caregiving Right. uh realm and and that's been really interesting but fundraising's hard you have to you know you've got to keep going out there with your pan your little cup and reminding people why this is important and I think the easiest selling proposition that I always use is there are we're a generous nation and there are a lot of great causes diseases and everything else but this is the one cause that affects Everyone in America, because somebody went and someone raised their hand to go into a war zone so you could make that choice.
3: And it's also very different in that politically it's been pretty, it's been clean clean for us. It's easier for all of us to do something for the veterans because you don't have to be fighting for something that one party hates more than the, the other one does. It's been pretty Pretty comfortable thing for us to do for that reason too. N- neither side wants to do anything that you know, keeps people away from donating or doing yeah. something physically for the veterans. I mean, people want to do something because what they did. Secondly, our own country was was attacked itself in our country in in nine eleven, and there's no draft, so people know that those that are sacrificing have done so much in afflicting and accomplishing so much that we really got to do something for them.
2: It's interesting, I wonder how many people today coming into consciousness of the fact that we're at war in Iraq and Afghanistan actually still think to tie it back to September 11th.
3: oh you gonna get for your trouble Another madman at the door Hating my battle boys
2: Love a-
0: It just makes me think that the day after my honeymoon, when I came back after New York City, I woke up in Maine, and my wife and I saw the first plane hit like everybody else did, and then, what, 15 minutes later was the second plane, and we all knew something was bad. We didn't really know what to think, but you had a different comment.
3: Yeah, we were were at the, uh, I was at the ABC London Bureau, because we lived in London from 2000 to 2002, and then that first plane hit, and we thought, what was that, like a Cessna? And then the second one hit, and we all turned to each other, and we said, that's Osama bin Laden, because we've been covering him for a couple—we knew that something was going to happen. Never this one, but we—and so literally within five hours, I was on the plane to Pakistan, trying to get into Afghanistan, which we finally did in October. So I had to go say goodbye to Lee Mm -hmm. and our four little kids, and, uh, and then say goodbye for about 17 weeks before coming back again
0: your your brain went right to bin laden yeah um
2: and i said bin who (laughs) on the phone when he said that
0: almost 18 years since that happened
3: in 9-11 it's hard to believe you know i think it was about a year ago the very first the first one joining the military was born after 9-11
2: kind of sobering
0: when we switch gears to those kids so They're Our doing kids? some cool things now Yeah oh, You don't yeah. have to tell the Exactly what they're doing The two ones That
2: have been fighting all day The ones working my last nerve Those two
0: <laughs> Even age 19
2: The 19 because year old my, twins
0: Right My one question About that There was sort of Two camps I would think Where you have The young The, the young ones And the younger ones
2: Team A and Team B Is what Bob called it. Okay them. Huh. Yeah. yeah
0: Both with the so, same wife when, <laughs> yeah, that's important We have confirmed that on the official of homepage yes, as far, podcasts, as, far, right, as, far yeah. as we know <laughs> So tell me about The recovery process through their eyes Between a 5 year old And a at the time what 14 year old mm-hmm. I don't think they remember a lot of it Don't you agree?
2: Well they don't remember you before it So I think they remember big moments Of things that happened one of the things that I think is so illustrative of a five-year-old girl's brain is, I'll, I will never forget this, because their winter break came and we we were supposed to have been going somewhere as a family. For the first time in a long time, we were taking like a real trip. that didn't happen. But instead, I was trying to find things for them to do in Washington while he was in a coma. And one of the things was a tour of the White House. And it was a bizarre moment because... President Bush was landing from somewhere else and was coming down in the helicopter, had heard we were there, and radioed to his people to to if he could hold us there because he wanted to meet us. And I was feeling very angry about the war at that moment in time, but I knew that you don't like walk out the door and not meet the President of the White House of the United States. (laughs) And so, he was so gracious, and he had two little dogs, and my daughter wanted a dog so badly. The dog that you're petting right now is a result of that guilt, by the way. Oh. so yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Woody. yeah, Woody meet, Woodruff. Meet Woody Woodruff. Um, I gave in eventually. But at the same token, that was the week that the neuropsychologist decided that the kids could see their dad because they mm. were coming to Washington but I wasn't letting them see him yet because we wanted him to wake up. And so the neuropsychologist finally said, okay, they can go see him. So she gowned up And there are no gowns for little kids. So Mm. it came all the way down to her feet and little gloves. And there are no little kids in a military ICU. So that was a striking moment where the kids walked down the hall and everybody turned. I think it was just like touching and people were, I could see them wiping away tears. And she came back to school. And at the end of the school year, there was her art project box. And in her box was a picture that she had drawn and it was the White House in the background and her in this yellow ball gown and it said, I wore a ball gown and went to meet the president. <laughs> <laughs> That's how a five-year-old processed the ICU, plus like taking a tour of the White House. And I think that the way that they look back at Bob is so different than our 12-year-old at the time, Mm. who listened around every corner, who picked up the phone quietly when the neuropsych person would call me or the doctors would call. She was trying to see if I was hiding stuff from her. So worried, so connected to her dad in a different way.
0: She sounds very intuitive.
2: Very intuitive. I'm not sure I did the right thing. I was mm. I kept a lot of information from them because I felt like I was the human shield. And what I learned very quickly was to give them the least amount of information possible. Not to lie, and not to cast it positively if it wasn't, but just to, if I told them too much, it was way too terrifying. Mm. We also had so much help. And by that I mean brothers and sisters of ours staying at the house with us at all times. So the kids had other people they could go to, talk to. When I see and talk to other military families, as you were saying, Bob, sometimes the kids literally have to be that caregiver. You stay with dad, you get his crutches, you push his wheelchair, because mom's got to go here to work or what have you. My kids were allowed to be kids during that period of time. Mm. And I'm not saying it was easy road, but I think I very much protected them. Can I ask
3: you a question? I can't remember if I asked you this or not, but what did you tell uh, them about how I was going to recover. Did you tell them that, that I'm going to get better? Did you tell them I will be with you, don't worry? Or what did you tell them? Because I remember there's been a lot of comments from, or strategies from doctors like you. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a chance to meet one of the, the doctors who helped save me in Bethesda. And he said when I was there, he told me, he did not, he says, we do not. And he treated so many of these veterans there. We never tell them, don't worry, you're going to get better. All he would say is, you're going to be with your family. Mm. Your family will love you. They never said things like that. And I don't know what you said to the kids back then. Well, I guess Mm.
2: I said a version of that. I realized early on that the details were not good. And I'd been, this was still the time when they were saying that after two years, you're pretty much done uh, with your recovery. Recovering, yeah. Which they don't say anymore, luckily. Or they shouldn't. and. I remember Catherine, the 12-year-old asking, "Is Dad going to be the same?" He doesn't. This is after he was awake. You know, he doesn't have the words and you know his face is all cut up and stuff like is Dad going to be the same? And somewhere in my poor tired brain I came up with the answer which was, "I am not going to lie to you because I don't have the answer. If I lie to you and try and tell you something that sounds good, you'll never believe me for the rest of my, my life. I don't know the answer, but I believe in my heart that God is going to make Daddy okay. I didn't say the same. I didn't say perfect. I didn't say any of that. And that was an early thing that I learned, and I look back on now, speaking about faith, which means different things to different people. Mm, Sure, We were never the couple that wore any religion on our sleeve, but it was a really wonderful thing to be able to say, look, I'm scared too, I go to bed at night and say a prayer, so I'm putting it somewhere, wherever that where is, Mm. whoever's up there, I think we're all talking about the same thing, ultimately, whatever faith is, and that gave her the feeling of, okay, Mom's got somewhere to take this, and I'm going to trust Mom. I'm going to put it with Mom. Mom's saying a prayer at night, Mm. but I could never, I never wanted to lie to them or tell them that I thought Dad would be just fine.
3: Actually, Lee and I both together, which we do every once in a while, we did a quick little talk for some friends of ours. Actually, for Red, White, and Blue, which is a terrific organization we've been funding for years. It's like like mm. home base. And one of the guys that was there, and he was actually asked me, like, wow, what do you give me some advice? And, and so I can get out of my depression. Mm. And I said, well, you know, I've suffered that so much you know, early on. I think I first had to admit to myself, that I'm not the same as I was. Mm. I think a lot of people will not, when you t- they say, come on, tell me the truth, I'm gonna be fully cured, right? This is all gonna go away. And, there's, and you can't really say, there's no chance, you could be subtle about it. But it's, only, it's the one who's got it, who's the patient, mm. who has to finally start to recover when they, when they know the truth or they mm. recognize the truth, that they're not gonna be the same. And if that's the case, then you've gotta figure out a way where you can win again. Mm-hmm. You know, this is maybe. As I told him, I said, maybe this is Machismo thing, right? I want mean, you got to find a new game, and so you can win that one. And nobody wants to just play; they want to do something where they can be the best of something.
0: There's a way for you to get back, and you certainly have to live your life extremely full. But my question back to you is, what is better? I think I've got. First of all, I think I've got less fear of death
3: because mm. I was kind of relatively there already and it was a painless peaceful white sky kind of thing you know when i came back I, I actually one of the first things i said to my brother who was one of the first ones in there jimmy and uh i said jimmy that was i gotta say that was it was pretty amazing i, I, I wouldn't mind going back where i was so i think there's that, that white light yeah it's like a white life mm. white white light and you know i kind of saw my body floating underneath me right after i got hit now, as Lee said earlier, you know what this is exactly. I don't really know. You know, it wasn't a particular person that I saw, right. or some entity that I saw. But I did know it's comfortable. I just feel much less fear about what it's going to be like when I die. But, and I think I love my kids more and my wife. Yeah. I mean, at least I was. I think I'm able to seem to be right. I mean, I, I don't know if it's, it's sort of hard to know because I can't. I don't think I could ever say that there was a less amount of love but i feel pretty grateful just to just to be here so i think i do
2: yeah i think you weren't a guy who needed that lesson however i think you always lived your life with your kids first lots of great examples of that
0: we're gonna wrap up and 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 thank you guys thank you so much for talking with us um
2: i'd like to make note that you drove four hours for this and you have to drive four back so i think the thanks (laughs) goes to you guys and the team here it's a super We're going golfing effort. after this. What are you talking I about? Hope so. I hope <laughs> you're going to stay for dinner. Um, I'm not cooking though.
0: <laughs> right. Um, you've mentioned that you're grateful. I, mean, I guess
3: the the sad thing about the wounds in these wars is the doctors, the nurses, the the MPs that have saved so many lives almost never had the chance to talk to the patients whose lives they saved. You know, there's one of the upside to having the ability and attention and, and forming a foundation that we've had the chance to go back and thank those people that did mm. it. I think that's one of the most important. I think I think every patient has a dream to do so. But in the military situation they were saved over in the sands of some other country and we don't know where the military go one day they're not like a local hospital. The doctor lives on their same neighborhood as the one who saved their life it's someone far away. But mm. well, I I feel so grateful for what they did. And if I get any chance to thank them, that's one of the most satisfying things. Hmm. I'm also grateful to the home base because they made it possible for me to throw in a pitch in one she of the Red did. Sox games. Oh, and, yeah. it, and it was, yeah. I should say, uh, it, was, it was a strike. It was about 97 miles an hour. Yeah, of course. Just kidding. About, yeah. But it was a strike. I threw a pitch for my Tigers. You know, I'm a Detroit guy. But they wouldn't even let me stand on the mound to throw it. Really? Like halfway down towards Why? the... Why? I don't know. because Did they I make you do underhand, too? I should have sent Probably. them, I should have given them the video of me Suffle. hitting a, a strike
0: with the Red Sox, you know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, guys. We enjoyed our visit with the Woodruffs very much. And it's truly incredible to me to think about the people that can turn events or circumstances, like what happened to Bob, and create something not just innovative, but sustaining. Bob Woodruff was interested, and so he set out across the world to explore in the 1980s which led to a journey in journalism. Reporting from war zones for years was his own service to all of us. Now, a terrible injury gave rise to a new chapter for Bob and his wife, Lee, with an unexpected gift of inspiration back to so many service members and families. So it doesn't surprise me that the first thing that Bob said when he woke up from coma was, how is everyone else? Six years after one IED blast triggered a life change for Bob and his family, another IED altered the path of an amazing soldier, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, in 2012. On the next episode of Home Base Nation, you'll meet this Army veteran who, in an instant, became one of five surviving quadruple amputees in the post-9-11 conflict entrepreneur motivational speaker husband and father of two young kids travis inspires everyone civilian and military alike with his infectious never give up never quit daily mantra and in his new york times best-selling book tough as they come travis takes us on his own journey to and from war and to some of the greatest years of his life after his injury so join us next time and thanks so much for listening I have not served our country, but I do have a real privilege to talk to those who have and learn how civilians can serve in many ways. We all take different messages and memories from these conversations, and hearing from the military and the civilian perspective is important to home base, whether it's from the clinic to establishing long-lasting collaborations and the podcast conversation. You can find a bonus Diner Debrief conversation just following this episode. So come to the table and meet Marine veteran Brendan McCaffrey and Army Warrant Officer 1 Armand Hunter for thoughts on supporting and protecting civilians and brotherhood and sisterhood for all who journey overseas for telling those stories and living those stories. Homebase is a partnership of the Red Sox Foundation and Massachusetts General Hospital, dedicated to providing mental health, brain injury care, and wellness programs at no cost to veterans and military families. Please visit homebase.org to learn about everything Homebase has to offer. If you'd like to share your comments or subscribe to our newsletter, please visit us at homebase.org slash nation. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to us wherever you get your shows and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Homebase Nation is a production of the Homebase Media Lab at the Charlestown Navy Yard in Boston. On behalf of the Homebase team, this is Dr. Ron Hirschberg. Thank you for joining us. Are you gonna play some guitar for us?
2: <laughs> Can um. I make a painting? <laughs> uh,
0: I want to do some expression here where you're gonna paint. Okay, you're gonna and play then guitar. And i gonna
2: interpret Bob's music in a form of art and give you each a drawing to take home. Yeah.